Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. They will continue our studies in verse 24 of chapter 22 in Luke's Gospel, and we'll be reading through verse 34. While you're turning there, I'll let you know that uh, this winter, I finally finished reading uh, Through Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Uh, I say finally because it took me about five years. Uh, you may know uh, Great Expectations is a long book, but it's not that long. Uh, and I'm a slow reader, but I'm not that slow. And uh, so Great Expectations for me was one of these books that I would, uh, I would dip into uh, and then I would dip out of. And I would read a chapter before going to bed and then I would put it down and I'd pick it up maybe in a couple weeks. Uh, and especially when the narrative got pretty dry, I would step away from it for a while and then have to come back and remember where I was all over again. But I found myself uh, on one uh, winter evening, not very long ago, uh, reading at a certain portion where, spoiler alert, Miss Havisham sets herself on fire. Suddenly, the narrative picked up. Uh, and uh, despite my tiredness and what were my droopy eyes at the beginning, I found myself at 11.30, having finished the rest of the book, uh, because the narrative was just so good, I had to keep going. Now, uh, why do I tell you all that? Uh, I tell you all that because uh, you know that we have been in Luke for three years. Uh, it's been a long time together in Luke, and typically this is the time, this would be the first week of our summer schedule, where we would transfer away from Luke, we would dip out of Luke's gospel and into something else, and then we would come back. But in chapter 22, the narrative is really picking up. Uh, things are getting really good, and uh, as we spoke in the session level uh, earlier this year, we decided that let's just push through to the end. Let's finish it now while we can. It might press a little bit into the fall, uh, but this is the time that we want to stick with Luke and, and with what he tells us about Christ and about what he's doing for his disciples. So we're today at the close of the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is still with his disciples probably sitting around the table where he has just administered the first Lord's Supper. And we're going to see today this dispute among his disciples and also Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. Luke chapter 22, we're going to begin reading in verse 23 because there's a close connection you need to see between verse 23 and verse 24. But our study today is verse 24 through verse 34. Now, before we read God's word together, please join me in another word of prayer as we seek his blessing upon it. Let's pray. <clears throat> o Lord, our God, this is your word. And it teaches us many things about ourselves, and it teaches us many things about what you call us to do in the world, but primarily it teaches us about your salvation through your Son. Help us, O Lord, to come away from your words, seeing more of Jesus Christ, believing more of him, and following him because of your Holy Spirit at work in us. Help us, O Lord, as we read, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, beginning our reading again in verse 23. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this, that is, who was going to betray Jesus. A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. 
Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and let the leader become as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on twelve, excuse me, sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. As a newly converted teenage uh, Christian, I prayed a certain secret prayer over and over and over again. The prayer that I prayed was so private that I have actually never told anyone else about it, and even my wife is hearing this story right now for the very first time. As a teenage believer, I prayed almost weekly that God would allow me someday to become a famous guitar player. I wanted to play shows to packed stadiums, and I wanted to tour the world, and I wanted to have fans who wanted to learn my music. It's a variation on the kind of prayer that other young people pray for themselves about the same time in life. And one young man wants to play pro football, and a young woman wants to write the next great American novel, and another one wants to become a politician and have their name on some brass plaque outside of their office in Washington. And there are all so many selfish dreams. And I bet at some embarrassing point in our spiritual lives, most of us have prayed pretty big prayers for ourselves that we've never told anybody else about. Of course, I convinced myself at the time that my prayer wasn't selfish. After all, I wanted the Lord to help me become uh, a world-famous Christian guitarist. Uh, something like the next Phil Keggy, except maybe a bit cooler. I wanted to have this enormous worldwide platform that I could use for the sake of the gospel. I rationalized my prayer by imagining that one of the best ways God could glorify himself was by giving me a little bit of glory. Just a little bit of worldly recognition in his name. Well, thankfully, the Lord did not answer, uh, at least positively, did not answer my teenage prayers. And really, I think I'm much happier being a world-famous preacher than I would have been being a world-famous guitar player. And also, thankfully, God's word is honest enough that it shows us Jesus' own apostles wrestling with their ambitions in a way that uh, might show us the way that we're embarrassed to admit that we wrestle with ours. Well, this passage contains two episodes that maybe the apostles were tempted to keep secret later in life. It shows us instances where they are so clearly hoping and trusting in the wrong things for themselves that 
when they became more mature Christians and they thought back, I wonder if they blushed as they remembered this. And maybe they were tempted not to tell anybody about these scenes in the upper room with Jesus and the way that he had to rebuke them and correct them. Maybe they would have liked to keep it a secret, but as Paul says to the Corinthians, these things are written down for our instruction. These episodes, embarrassing as they are, are given to us to teach us, to to lead us away from selfish ambition and to lead us toward Christ. These episodes are written down to show us how to live as Christ's faithful servants. Three points today about what it means to be a faithful servant of Christ. The first is that faithful servants follow Christ's example. Faithful servants follow Christ's example. Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, as embarrassing as this verse is, and especially in the context of the Lord's Supper, which immediately preceded it, as embarrassing as this episode is, it's even sadder to realize that this seems to have been a favorite conversation topic among the disciples. You know, some people always find a way to turn the conversation to politics or to the economy or to what their grandchildren are getting into. It seems, as we read the Gospels, that the apostles love to turn the conversation to which one of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. In fact, back in Luke chapter 9, Luke has already recorded an almost identical argument uh, among the apostles. And you remember reading the other Gospels and hearing that request from the mother of James and John, Uh, Lord, let them sit on your left and your right when you come into the glory of your kingdom. And it seems to be this ever-present recurring conversation among the apostles. And not even the mention of Christ's suffering, not even the mention, the prediction of Judas' betrayal can throw a wet blanket on their hunt for recognition. You notice that that is actually what they are after. They don't argue over which one of them is going to do the greatest things for Christ, they argue, it says, over which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. It's an argument over public opinion. They want influence among others. They want to be thought well of, and they want to be spoken well of. They want fans, and they want followers. And if they had Instagram, they wanted to be counted as an influencer. And that's the way the world counts greatness. Verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority are called benefactors. A better translation of that might actually be that those in authority have themselves called benefactors. They erect monuments, they put up plaques, they they put placards all around saying how wonderful they are and shouldn't you just love them? And so there's a certain schizophrenia about worldly concepts of greatness. On the one hand, there is this desire for for power-drunk authoritarianism, and on the other hand, there is this desire to be universally acclaimed and beloved. Dictator for life, Kim Jong-un, is the perfect example. He is the big man at the top with his hands around the throat of an entire country, and yet he is praised and almost worshipped as the savior of his people. And his round, benevolent, smiling face hangs on the walls of every home in North Korea because it has to. Power and praise 
That's how the world measures greatness. But not so with you, Jesus says. Let the world go crazy, pursuing influence and recognition. Let the unbelievers fight their way to the top while maintaining their glory and trying to keep it intact. You believers, you followers of Christ, you serve your way to the bottom of the stack instead. In Jesus' day, youth was not a virtue like it is in our day. To be young was to be unwise and inexperienced. It was to be passed over when we were handing out uh, positions of leadership. No one wanted to be young. They couldn't wait to be older and, and to have some position and some recognition. And Jesus says that the greatest among them should become as the youngest. The leader should become as the one who serves. And in fact, Jesus is the one who is among them as a servant. It all has a very John chapter 13 feel to it. In fact, one commentator suggested that if we were to harmonize the Gospels, we we might not be surprised if this conversation between Jesus and the disciples immediately preceded that time when Jesus took the towel and stooped down to get on his knees and to wash the feet of his disciples. That's a perfect picture of Christ's service, isn't it? That humble, condescending act that that gives flesh to what, uh, what servanthood in God's kingdom, what greatness in God's kingdom looks like. Christ came down, and Christ stooped low, and Christ became a servant in God's kingdom. That's the example he set for us. And you could see servanthood in the example of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the one who reached out in mercy to the hungry and to the poor and to the outcast and to the oppressed. He's the one who welcomed the little children and he put his hand of blessing upon those who were counted as nothing in the world's eyes. And Jesus never counted himself too good or or too important to minister to the needs of people around him. The example of, of servanthood in his ministry. And we also see the example of servanthood in his obedience. The kings of the world are domineering. They live as... Uh, as a standard unto themselves sometimes. They live as though they were above the law. But Christ came into the world as one born of a woman, born under the law. He lived every one of the days of his years on earth by submitting himself in obedience to the Father. He said that his food and drink was to do the will of the one who sent him, and he left us with the example of his obedience. Of course, ultimately, you could see servanthood in the example of Jesus' sacrifice. That's what he means when he says that I am among you as one who serves. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, that line is changed. And he adds the rest of the conversation. Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus' greatest act of humility and service. Here is the Lord and the sustainer of all that exists. Here is the radiance and the exact imprint of the glory of God himself. Here is the only mediator between God and man, and yet he humbled himself, and he emptied himself, and he became obedient to suffering in Calvary. In order to fulfill that prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he should bear the sins of many, that he should become the servant of the Lord. 
Well, that's Jesus' example of servanthood. And if we are His faithful servants, it means that we should strive, we should yearn, we should desire for the greatness that comes by following Christ's example. It means that our very ideas about what greatness looks like should take upon a cruciform shape. It means dying to our aspirations for worldly recognition and praise and and advancement. Following Christ's example in the church means being willing to do the menial task, the little job that needs to be done, and not the one that makes you feel good or look good. Following Christ's example in our Christian relationships means giving our time and our attention to those little people that we are tempted to overlook. Maybe it's the children who are running around. Maybe it's those people that are just a little bit socially awkward. And and maybe it's the people who always want to talk about one thing when you want to talk about another thing. But we're together as believers in Christ. And so we come together in charity and we give our attention. We give our time. We give our compassion to one another. We don't think ourselves too good or too important for anyone else. And following Christ's example in our families means treating others in our home with respect and kindness. It means helping one another without grumbling. Even when those in our own household never notice the things that we've been helping with. There are untold numbers of ways that we can apply the example of Christ's servanthood into our own lives, but they all begin with laying down our pride, and laying down our position, laying down our desires to be recognized and counted as wonderful. Leon Morris writes that Jesus is not saying here that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in the lowly place. He's saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. That's the example of Christ's service. And following his example means submitting ourselves to God's call to obedience and to faithfulness, no matter how small that calling might be. Well, the first thing we need to know is that faithful servants follow Christ's example. Secondly, faithful servants look to Christ's reward. Faithful servants look to Christ's reward. With all this talk of not seeking recognition and and not seeking what we can gain, uh, verses 28 to 30 catch us off guard. Jesus here is, is giving promises, big, unimaginable promises to his apostles. He says, because they've stuck with him, because they were devoted to him, he's going to give them thrones from which to judge and a table from which to eat. These are almost unreasonably gracious promises. Especially when you consider that in a matter of hours, every one of these devoted disciples is going to flee. They're going to scatter when the shepherd is struck, and Peter himself is going to deny that he ever knew Jesus in the first place. And yet Jesus offers rewards. Unreasonably gracious rewards for their devotion through his ministry. Now, if we're honest, I think... Many of us get a little uneasy when we encounter these passages where God promises heavenly rewards to his people. Quite frankly, we just, we don't know what to do with them. 
I bet a few of us would probably break out in hives if we sang those gospel songs that I grew up singing in the Baptist church of my childhood. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below. A little silver, a little gold. But in that city where the ransomed will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. You know the chorus. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we will never more wander but walk on streets that are purest gold. And I missed the last note, but you get the idea. We hear that and our Presbyterian antenna go up. We're suspect of, of anything that seems like a, a prosperity gospel, even if that prosperity is painted in heavenly hues. We get the sense that we ought to serve the Lord, we ought to serve the great giver of gifts for more than just the gifts he can give us. And that's right. That's the right inclination. And yet we find ourselves over and over again in Scripture bumping into the God who promises these big heavenly blessings for his people. And what are we to do with this? In fact, Scripture tells us that belief in some kind of heavenly reward is essential for approaching God in the right way. Did you know that? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's a non-negotiable. In other words, to quote another Baptist hymn, our life of faith is about standing on the promises of God. And I won't sing that one, I promise. It means that our faith in the Lord is not supposed to be a zero-sum game. It means that we're supposed to come to God realizing that he's able to make big promises and he's able to keep big promises and he's able to reward his people with unimaginable heavenly blessings. And often those heavenly blessings, those promises of reward are a guard for our earthbound hearts. They serve as, as guide rails to keep us from from contenting ourselves with the lesser rewards that are only as permanent as the next breath in our lungs. Consider the promises that Jesus is making to his apostles in verses 28 to 30. He promised at the end, we're working backwards, he promised thrones of judgment to the apostles. It was a promise about influence and authority in the kingdom of God. And, and you need to know that this is uh, a unique promise. This is only for them and not for us. This is a promise that was only given to those men through whom uh, the Lord would continue to build his church. Through these men, the Lord, the, the risen and ascended Lord, is going to continue to reveal his truth for his people. And belief or rejection of the apostolic witness is going to become the dividing line between eternal life and eternal death. But you can imagine the temptation upon these men to just follow in Judas's footsteps. 
especially in the next several hours when Judas brings that band of men and they arrest Christ in the dark of night in a place where nobody else could find them or knew that they were there. They can descend at any moment and take them in secret. And you can imagine the kind of threat that that was. As they proceeded in their ministry after Christ's resurrection, the threat that it was, the temptation that it was, to just remain silent when the Jewish leaders began to persecute them. You can imagine the temptation that they felt to make their continued ministry to be about themselves instead of about Jesus. The temptation they had as, as, as wonderful orators to seek recognition for themselves or, or to seek all those things that make for a life of ease and security. And Jesus needs to inoculate his apostles against the virus of lesser rewards. And so he gives them a glimpse of the eternal glory that he has in store for them. And the same is true of the promise of the table, except here's a promise for all of us as well. You remember that back in chapter 13, Jesus said that many will come. Not just the apostles, but you and I, and, and we will come. Many will come from east and west and north and south and recline together at table in the kingdom of God. And this is a picture of fullness and a picture of fellowship. It, it's a picture showing us the eternal welcome into the hospitality of God. An eternal banquet of righteousness where Christ picks up the tab. But you remember what Jesus brought with him when he brought the gospel into the world. Remember Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, but I tell you rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Jesus brought division on the basis of faith in his name. And he goes on, the, the division will happen between father and son and sister and mother. And Matthew says a man's enemies will be the, those of his own household. Some of you know the pain of that division. You've got children. You've got siblings. You've got spouses. You've got parents who do not share your faith. We're praying for our brothers and sisters in Mauritania, and they know what it is to be disowned, disinherited because they have found fellowship with Jesus Christ. And what wouldn't some of us give in order to be accepted where we are? In order to, to have that deep spiritual communion and companionship with the people in this life who mean the most to us in this world. Jesus is telling us that there is something better, that there's a reward that is worth all that we might have to leave in this life in order to follow him. So no, we don't seek the Lord merely for his gifts. We don't serve the Lord as hourly workers just trying to get that next big promotion. But when we serve the Lord through a, a heart of faith and love, we actually find that the rewards are added. We find that the Lord rewards His people, and in His grace, those eternal rewards help to put our earthly ambitions in their proper perspective. So dear believer, don't be ashamed to stand on God's promises. Don't be ashamed to count on them and to wait on them. This is what faithful servants do. 
faithful servants follow Christ's example and faithful servants look to Christ's reward. Thirdly, faithful servants trust Christ's protection. Now, if the beginning of our passage reminds us of John chapter 13, the end of our passage reminds us of Job chapter 1 and 2. You remember the scene there when Satan enters into the presence of the Lord, and actually it's God himself who first brings up his servant Job, and consider my servant and his righteousness. And then when Satan attempts to provoke, when he asks that he be allowed to, be, uh, to take a swing at Job, it's the Lord who sets boundaries on what the old snake is able to accomplish, isn't it? Actually, that's a pretty good Old Testament reference to have in the backs of our minds as we consider what Jesus says to Peter, because here in these verses is further proof that the power of God's enemies is limited at best. Verses 31 and 32, Simon Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, for those of a southern persuasion, you'll notice that verse 31, the word you could be more accurately translated as y'all. It's a plural. Satan has made another request to shake God's servants and to see what falls out. And this time uh, he has his sights set on all of the apostles. But then Jesus turns specifically to Peter. And in verse 32, the yous are all singular. He turns to Peter and he lets him know that whatever tricks the devil may have up his sleeve, the one thing he is not able to do is to make Peter's faith disappear. Christ, he says, has prayed for Peter. And Satan is limited by Jesus' prayers. Now, we don't know why Jesus picked Peter specifically, either to pray for him or to tell him that he prayed for him. We find in the upper room in John that he prayed for all his disciples. We don't, we don't know why Peter is singled out here. Maybe because Jesus knew Peter's impetuous nature. Maybe because as the first apostle to be called by Christ, Jesus knew that Satan was going to attack Peter more viciously in hopes of rattling the rest of them. We don't know exactly why Jesus focuses on Peter with, the, with his prayer. Nor do we know why Jesus didn't pray something different for Peter than he did pray. You notice that Jesus didn't pray for Peter to be spared from Satan's attack. He didn't pray for, for sinlessness or, or spiritual superpowers or some way that he would be snatched away from the jaws of the evil one. Jesus simply prayed for faith to hang on. He prayed for true repentance after the fact. Jesus prayed for strength to strengthen others through his struggling. And in Christ's word to Peter is a word for all the rest of Christ's struggling children. The word reminds us that the prayers of our Savior are more powerful than whatever spiritual challenge you may be facing right now. In the case of Peter, the old Puritan, William Gurnall, wrote this. He said, when God says, stay, Satan must stand like a dog by the table while the saints feast on God's comfort. He does not dare to snatch even a tidbit, for the master's eye is always upon him. That's the point here. Christ is the master of the table. And Satan is bound, and he must stand at attention, and he can go no further than he is allowed. 
Christ is the stronger man of his parable who is able to enter into Satan's domain and to bind him and to reclaim that which belongs to him. Christ is the creator who set the foundations of the world and said to the oceans and to the waves, thus far you may go and no further. Christ is also the Lord of your circumstances. He's the Lord of your anxiety and of your depression. He's the Lord of your temptation. He is the God of your troubled past, and He's the God of your unsure future, and He's the God of your children, even if they're walking away from Him right now. He is the God over whatever threatens to shake your faith in the promises of His gospel, and according to the apostolic witness, the resurrected Savior always lives to make intercession for His saints, and that means that He's praying for you. And the powers, the prayers of our Savior are more powerful than whatever you may be facing. It's true that we sometimes wonder why His intercession leads us through hardship instead of out of it. It's true that we sometimes wonder why He chooses to strengthen our faith through repentance instead of sinlessness. But with Christ's prayers on our behalf, we never have to wonder if believers are safe. J.C. Ryle called Jesus' intercession the one great secret of a believer's perseverance in the faith. He said the continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great standing miracle. His enemies are so mighty, and his strength is so small, and the world is so full of snares, and his heart is so weak that it seems at first a slight impossibility for him to reach heaven. But these verses explain the Christian's safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God. Oh, the word in the scriptures for our friend at the right hand of God is advocate. Paraclete, one who, who makes our case on our behalf. And so as the accuser of the brethren prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, we are safe because our advocate is at the right hand of the Father, protecting and securing the salvation of his people. Well, in Luke 22, the sinner's friend is warning Peter about spiritual danger that's just over the horizon. And Peter responds the way that we probably expect him to respond, even if you hadn't read this passage already a thousand times. I'm ready, Lord. I've got this. Don't worry about me. I'll be all right. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Typical pre-resurrection Peter. Full of zeal, full of boldness to a fault. Although we never fault him for his intentions. In fact, uh, following Jesus to prison and to death is exactly what Jesus had been telling his disciples they got to get ready for through the whole gospel. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit working within him to fortify him and, and to make Peter into that granite-faced apostle he was named to be, that's exactly where he's going to go. And you can read through Acts, and you can see Peter in prison, and you can read through church history, and you can find that Peter himself was crucified and, uh, and followed his Lord in death as well. But now, at this moment, Peter's faith is in all the wrong places. His faith is in all the wrong places. 
Christ has just told him of the power of his prayer on his behalf, and Peter is trusting in himself. Maybe it's the way that Peter could convince himself that actually he was the greatest of all the apostles. So again, Matthew's version has Peter telling Jesus that though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Uh, Peter thinks that he's different. He imagines that he's strong. He professes his readiness to take spiritual danger head on. We're going to have another opportunity to to see Peter's resolve and and to witness Peter's sin in a few weeks when we come to it. But first we need to learn the lesson of our Savior's strength. Because Christ here gave Peter a word of warning and a word of encouragement. Trial is coming, he said, but the Savior's hand is going to hold him. And in his pride, Peter believed that he could hold on by himself pretty well, thank you very much. And it's what we sometimes do when difficulties arise. It's one of the ways that we convince ourselves of our own spiritual greatness. First, we ignore the word of warning. We tell ourselves that I'm too sanctified to be taken in by Satan's lies. I've progressed too far in in my spiritual walk. I I can withstand this temptation. We downplay the vulnerability and we overemphasize our strength. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, tells the story of a a well-known preacher, and someone asked him one day, Preacher, how do you think the devil will try to take you down? To which the preacher replied, Well, I don't know, but I'm sure that it won't happen through my family life. Well, you, you can bet how the story ends, and within a matter of years, that man was committing adultery and leaving the ministry in disgrace. And take heed lest you fall, says the scriptures, but we act like Peter so often. No, 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 I'm fine, I'm good, I've got this. And we ignore the word of warning, and then we're forced to ignore Christ's word of encouragement. We close our ears to the promise of his protection, and we trust our hold on Christ rather than his hold on us, even though it's the most ridiculous place to put our trust. You know by experience that your hold on Christ is barely better, if at all, than one of those claw machines in the arcade. And you put all your money in it, and you want that little stuffed thing in the back of of the box there, and you put your money in, and you line up the claw just right, and you only get one chance. Then you press that button, and now it comes, and you think it's got it, and as it begins to come up, right through the, the claws. And that's what our hold on Christ is like. But his hold on us is like getting a hug from the world's strongest octopus. Eight arms, and they're all covered in suckers, and they're all wrapped around us. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How faithful servants walk with Jesus by resting in his faithfulness. By trusting in his protection rather than our protection of ourselves. It's all about surrendering our desire to to think well of ourselves and to have others think well of us. You know, she really weathered that storm a few years ago. She's such a model, such an inspiration to the rest of us Christians, the way that she dealt with those things. She's a really strong believer. Oh, thank you. Yes, 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 yes. 
Oh, you know, he, he's such a wonderful example in the church. I bet he loves his family. I bet he disciples his children. I bet he prays fervently over them every night. And well, uh, thank you for noticing. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, faithful disciples don't trust in their hold on Christ, but in Christ's hold on them. And they trust in his protection. And they look for his reward. And they follow his example of trying to get to the lowest place. That's what true greatness in the kingdom looks like. It looks like following our Savior who laid down his life for those that didn't deserve it. Being a faithful disciple of his means following him and taking up our cross and serving the least of those because he's loved us and because he rewards us and he holds us. Let's pray together.